Welcome to the Sacramental Charismatic. I'm your host, Luke Garrity, and on this podcast, I discuss topics related to the church, the Holy Spirit, mission, and how these subjects intersect within sacramentality. I'm a pastor theologian living in Northern California, and while I'm primarily discussing topics related to these themes and interviewing relevant voices, I'll also discuss whatever else I feel like because, well, this is my podcast. My website, LukeGarity.com, has plenty of blog articles for you to delve into, and I'd love to invite you to find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Let's go. the Sacramental Charismatic. Today I am in week six or seven of my uh, my lockdown. I've lost count of how many weeks I've been in the house now uh, due to COVID-19. So I'm sitting here in Northern California enjoying a glass of wine because today I have the author of two fantastic books, The Spirituality of Wine and The Soul of Wine. I have Gisela Kreglinger-Smith. Did I pronounce your name even remotely close to being true? Wonderful, Luke. Perfect. Oh, well, so well, just welcome. I'm absolutely, I'm like starstruck. You're, I'm a huge fan. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here. And you have a glass of wine as well? Yes, and I thought I'd wait to pour it until we're on. Um, I pulled out a Californian Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh. In honor of this interview, I'm going to pour myself a little glass, even though I usually only drink after 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and it's only 4.13, but sometimes you have to make an exception because we're having yes. this interview, and it will go so much more, more smoothly. And we'll I felt so. More spirited. With having a glass of wine. <laughs> I felt it would be a dishonor to your work to not have this glass of wine uh, with me. So let's uh, cheers, virtual cheers, virtual cheers. <laughs> so how are you doing in the midst of this global pandemic? Um, you live in Alabama. And so I'd love to have you for our listeners. Uh, there may be some listeners that are new to your work. Uh, and so if you wouldn't mind, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I'm, I'm super, this is mostly for me. I'm going to be really honest. I'm interested in your background, your history. I've, I've loved your, your books. Um, so I'd love to know more about your family, your education, all that. So, yeah. Well, um, because you come from the vineyard tradition, I just want to say that I've We've been connected with the vineyard tradition first through the Catholic charismatic renewal in Germany, but then also as a student um, with Gordon Fee, who um, has been very involved, and um, mm. I just have great admiration for it. I've been to a vineyard scholars conference when my first book, The Spirituality, first came out. I grew up in um, a wine region of Bavaria called Franconia. And I grew up on a winery attending a Lutheran church. And mm. so that experience of growing up on a winery with a family steeped in the Lutheran tradition has profoundly shaped um, who I am and what I do. And a lot of what I write about in the spirituality of wine and then especially in the soul of wine, which is a lot more autobiographical, mm. has really come from my family and my ancestors. And I'm just... I was able to put into words 
and into theological form the wisdom of um, traditions that have been lost. And I wanted mm. to record them. And a lot of the people that I uh, interviewed in the spirituality of wine were older vintners who still married faith in mm. craft wine. And I, I thought it was very, very important to record what they had to say because there are very few vintners of the younger generation who are you know, bringing those two realms together. Mm. So that's sort of where I grew up. And um, I've always been interested in theology. I've always asked questions. And um, so I went to Regent College in Canada to study under Gordon Fee. Yeah. Uh, because he was this charismatic uh, <laughs> person who was also a fantastic scholar. And I was very, very drawn to that combination of the charismatic with the with a very, very um, rooted understanding of scripture and the tradition. And so um, my theology was very much shaped by being at Region, which had a strong emphasis on uh, Christian spirituality. Eugene Peterson became my spiritual director and mentor. He mm. actually um, financed my PhD through the message income. And wow. they gave me um, research grants to write The Spirituality of Wine. He wrote the foreword to it. And mm. The Soul of Wine, the last book, is actually dedicated to Eugene and Jan. Yeah. And, wow. Um, so they had a big influence on my life and uh, my theology and how I look at the world. And then I came um, after my PhD at the Institute for Theology, Imagination, and the Arts in St. Andrews. Mm. I, um, I did my PhD on George MacDonald and mm. his understanding of the use of story for spiritual formation, really to then teach Christian spirituality. Wow. So after that, I then moved to Birmingham, Alabama to teach Christian spirituality at a seminary. And I did that for four years. And then I went to Scotland and I got this research grant and I wrote The Spirituality of Wine. Mm. And then I hit the road to spread the good news in liquid form. <laughs> I had no clue what adventure I would be going on. I think the Lord, if we are open to his ways, he sends us on journeys that we would have never dreamt of. And so I, you know, for the last few years, I, uh, since the publication of The Spirituality of Wine, I've been literally traveling the world. I've gone to New Zealand and Hong Kong mm -hmm. and, you know, been all over the U.S. and Canada and, you know, Europe. And I do these events around The Spirituality of Wine where I try to, um, have this more sacramental embodied theology and then mm. I usually lead people into wine tasting as a spiritual practice. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I, I mean, when I was started, started thinking about who I'd like to have on this podcast, I mean, you were in the top, top five names I came. Cause I was like, I, I wasn't quite sure how sacramental or charismatic, you know, you were, but I could tell in your book that you, you, you might not have used those words as much, but you were definitely in the same lane. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I was just, uh, and then we were talking earlier before we started recording about your connection to the, to the vineyard movement, which I'm a part of, uh, John Wimber. And that's great. So I just got to, first of all, I think the most important question before we get into anything else, um, it, it's, it seems to me to be maybe the most important question. Um, and I know it's not fair to ask a wine connoisseur what your favorite wine is so what are your top five well i think it's the great varieties that are important to me and where they come from and i think my favorite wines are um, pinot noirs 
mm-hmm. from Burgundy in Oregon. Um, the more earthy um, uh, Pinot Noirs, they're, they're lighter wines, they're more delicate. Mm-hmm. I think they're well-crafted. Um, they're very, very um, sophisticated and perhaps even mystical. Yeah. <laughs> they have a presence about them and a beauty that I find enchanting. Oh, that's great. Um, unfortunately, those wines come at a steep price. Yes. So I don't drink them very often, mostly when friends of mine who have great wine cellars <laughs> have <laughs> invite me to share a lovely bottle. For example, um, we um, it was my birthday and uh, a, a, a winemaker gave me a lovely bottle of Pinot Noir. Mm. And another friend brought a bottle of Pinot Noir from France. They all knew. And it was just beautiful. So Mm. I I really like them, but we don't have them very often because the good Pinot Noirs are very expensive. And that's, um, you know, a challenge um, for a writer in a missionary Mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. When you don't have a lot of cash, you have to to settle sometimes. um, So Pinot Noirs, um, I do like the uh, Burgundian Chardonnays. I know that Chardonnays, I call her Madame Chardonnay. Madame Chardonnay is an extremely elegant lady in Burgundy, (laughs) very sophisticated, alluring, enchanting. But then when she, you know, immigrated to the U.S., she um, got a little cheap. She forgot about her upbringing and, you know, lost her heritage and her dignity and then they used a lot of makeup oak to cover over her flaws. Yeah. And she um, had a very bad reputation in North America, but she's recovering. She is remembering her heritage, and you can now find lovely Chardonnays. But I, I, I do also mm. like those very fine and, you know, ethereal Chardonnays. And then after that, I'd say it's uh, Riesling from okay. Germany. I think um, they have the potential to be some of the most beautiful wines. If you Mm. can get over the idea that sweet wines aren't good wines and you actually discover what complexity and beauty and facets are in a lovely Riesling, then Rieslings can become a great adventure. So Mm. um, those are probably um, my favorite wines. Okay. Any well-crafted bottle. And I'm always, always interested in trying new wines and sometimes even those wines that have a little bit of an edge or a flaw but are unique, mm-hmm. are, you know, I really enjoy that. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how, um, you know, as a person who's kind of learning more about wine the last probably five years, um, you know, at first at all, I couldn't, I couldn't come up with the language to describe what was happening. Uh, but I went on a wine, a friend of mine um, uh, is a big, he actually was at one time a wine blogger and had a really really influential uh, blog on and uh, he took me wine tasting and we did barrel tasting and the whole nine yards and every winemaker explained the process and and after that I was like oh like I understood tannins and I understood some of the depth you know the language uh, so yeah I've I've uh, I've started to appreciate a lot of those things and I can kind of like oh, okay I get it you know because there's a big difference between a good bottle of wine and a bad bottle of wine that is absolutely <laughs> the case okay. which 
I think is probably true about a lot of different uh, things, right? Including theology. <laughs> there's, there's good theology that helps human beings flourish, and then there's bad theology that that I think hurts people. And that's what I think is so remarkable about your book is that it is such a uh, books, I should say. Um, you know, the spirituality of wine, though the the first book that I kind of cut my teeth on your work was was um, you know for me it was such a good blending of of an integrative approach to doing theology because it was a biblical theology of wine. It was a historical theology of wine. It had a lot of really practical, practical stuff. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to kind of think about that. So, so you've written two books. Um, you have 2016's a spirituality of, Oh, you have three. What, what's your, what's your third book? My, well, my first book that I wrote is when I turned my PhD into a book on George MacDonald and his okay. use of glory in the imagination. So that's my first book on George MacDonald and sort of my PhD turned into a book. And then I wrote The Spirituality of Wine. Okay. And um, then The Soul of Wine. And then I'm working on a couple other projects. Oh, great. So the first book, uh, and that's available, people can purchase that on Amazon or on yeah, some type of... Yeah, it's called Revelations, um, Parables, Imagination, and George MacDonald's Christian Fiction. It's really exploring him in the tradition of Jesus as the one who used parable to mm, reveal okay. um, the dynamics of the kingdom of God and what is it about parables and language and the imagination mm, fantastic. that God can break into our lives and uh, shape us and transform us. Okay, and, great. Um, so that's my first book. And then um, I decided that it's a very, the first, I think all my books are, sort of I'm trying to develop new ground and write about things that people haven't written about a lot. I just mm. think we need to have a much more holistic and embodied theology. Um, and George MacDonald was a great model for me that way. He is mm. one of the you know few you know early Protestant writers who has developed a very extensive uh, Christian spirituality. Yeah. And um, so I learned so much from him and a very, very strong creation spirituality as well. Mm -hmm. And um, so that laid the groundwork. I'm, I'm always interested in wholeness and being holistic mm. and, um, com you know, making sure that our theology stays uh, grounded and relational and transformational. And, you know, having grown up in the Lutheran church that is very academic, very abstract, mm -hmm. very philosophical. I mean, great, great, great theology, but it was so disconnected from our lives and the winery and my family never, you know, we never came home discussing sermons. We we're like, ah, mm -hmm. well, that was, um, yeah, that was a sermon. Well, let's get on with life now. <laughs> yeah. It... Unless the sermon was about, you know, the wedding feast of Cana or you know john yeah 15. text text that you could easily connect with right that had some reality yeah well yeah. That, that's i think that's an interesting observation about your work um that you have because it seems to me like one of the questions i had was um you know re regarding spirituality you know when i was reading and uh, kind of actually rereading uh the book um, I, I came upon, you know, right in, the, right in the beginning of the book, you talk about how you, you define spirituality as a strain of Christian theology that pays attention to the way we live life 
in light of our Christian beliefs. And then you go on to talk about how it avoids being abstract for the sake of being abstract. It seemed like you, and I, again, to say that your book, it just really has um, a really good blend of biblical theology, systematic theology, historical theology, and then practical theology. It's really about, you know, the day-to-day stuff. And so I, I would, I'm kind of curious, you know, because you've mentioned that, why do you feel that theology um, needs to be practical and engaged? And why is that so important to your work? I think it does come out of my upbringing in a traditional Lutheran faith that has become in Germany and in the particular area where I come a bit disjointed. There is there mm. are the great theologians that come out of the Lutheran tradition, highly academic and yeah. you know, know many languages and um, it's very all very, very impressive, but they have not been able to really connect with mm. uh, the parishioners very well. I don't think it always ends up to be which is very important about social justice or our political voice that mm-hmm. we need to have. But the question of how our faith informs us and especially our struggles in the challenges we go through, I never felt like they gave us much of an answer. And for me, and I was very involved, I was always very involved in the church and in the youth group. And, you know, my youth group activities were always things like selling fair trade products from Tanzania <laughs> or, you know, protesting for environmental things. I mean, very, you know, active, and I'm grateful for that. But when yeah. it came to my own life or the struggles that we had, the mm. church had very little answers. And this is where I think the Catholic charismatic renewal in John Wimber um, came in and added a dimension to my spirituality that I really needed. Mm. And, um, I think that's where a lot of that was awakened, that, oh, wow, mm-hmm. God this is all meaningful for me personally as well. Not just that I help my neighbor and the poor and, you know, make sure that things are more just, which is very important. But mm. it was always, I always was left wondering, well, what about me? Yeah. What about mom who's struggling with depression and we don't know how to help her. Mm-hmm. And, mm. um, that's, I think, how this was birthed. But then I think Eugene Peterson in particular uh, was a profound influence on me who insisted that theology needs to be grounded in, in the relational mm, and yeah. lived in the concrete. So he was a tremendous influence on me as I was trying to develop my own way of doing theology. Mm. I Gordon Fee, of course. I did uh, a master's degree in New Testament studies with him, so he uh, helped me to read the Bible well. Yeah, yeah. Careful. And then Eugene Peterson brought this um, emphasis on the lift dimension, and especially with the Bible, you know, biblical spirituality, we called it. What kind of spirituality emerges out of the the biblical text? Hmm. And I feel like my work, um, that's what I hope it is, it does emerge out of the biblical text. It's not a philosophical construct that is... Is, is sort of the determining factor, but it's the narrative of the Bible and how that unfolds the theme of wine and feasting and joy that has shaped, I hope, my spirituality mm-hmm. of wine. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it does that well. I mean, again, that's kind of how I, I've tried to 
figure out a way to when I when I'm explaining why somebody needs to read your book. There's almost always someone who loves wine and who's a follower of Jesus. And I'm like, you have to read this book because it's a biblical theology of wine. <laughs> it's it's such a such a great great uh, book to to kind of dive into. I think you know um, it's interesting you mentioned John Wimber and the and the Catholic Charismatics. Um, I think it was Francis McNutt who at that time was a pretty popular. Uh, uh, at the time, he was a uh, Roman Catholic charismatic leader. And, you know, I remember early on in my, I grew up in the vineyard movement as a kid. So I've always um, seen the importance of, um, you know, Wimber used to talk a lot about doing the stuff and everybody gets to play. Like every follower of Jesus should be engaged in doing kingdom stuff. Um, and so I wonder if, what are your thoughts on this? Because I think like someone for yourself, you grew up in a, in a more, um, more academic tradition, you know, and I, I did my MDiv in a reformed setting. So I'm kind of, I, I can easily understand exactly what you're talking about, how there's a real high value for the intellectual um, side of our faith and reasoning. And there's a value for uh, for worship as being engulfed in the life of the mind. Um, and, and so po- folks who seem to grow up in that tradition have this desire or this longing, surprisingly to me, who hey, they want to have like the ba- the basic daily, you know, just like, give me Jesus as I'm doing, you know, barbecuing or I'm taking care of my kids or whatever it is. Uh, whereas for someone like myself who grew up in a very practical, I mean, I would say pragmatism almost won the day. <laughs> There's almost this strong desire for like, no, I want some theological, theological depth. What do you, what do you think um, is, is maybe a good balance there? Or, or how do we keep the tension that that values the life of the mind, but also sees it grounded in, in, you know, the activities of the kingdom or in our own personal discipleship. How has that been, I guess, a, uh, a tension you've tried to maintain? Or do you even see that? Yeah, I think this is why I went to Regent College to study theology rather than go to a university in Germany, because I could not mm. see how I could learn that there. So I did go to a place where I studied with Gordon Fee and UG Peterson and many others who sought to bring those together in that field of Christian spirituality. So I think mm. that um, search for, you know, for, you know, I mean, it has always been very present within the Catholic tradition and the mystical tradition and um, the different monastic traditions. But in the Protestant tradition, that has um, sort of become a new search. People realize Mm -hmm. that we need to be more multifaceted. We need to be more uh, thoughtful, more engaging with how theology shapes us as human beings, as individuals, as communities. And um, so I am part, I think, of that movement that's... Mm. Regent College, I think, was a very early expression of that. And they had two professors that taught this yeah. discipline. Now, a lot of seminaries have at least one or two people who teach this tradition because people mm-hmm. realize we need it. Yeah. And so, you know, I, um, I, I feel very, very grateful that I had professors and mentors and friends who... Um, who, who, who tried to develop this. And then, you know, doing my PhD on George McDonald, I felt like that's what he was trying to do for his own time. And mm. his development of the fantasy genre and fairy tales and doing theology through mm-hmm. fairy tales, which is a very incarnational way mm-hmm. of doing theology, just like Jesus told parables mm-hmm. and stories. And um, so he, you know, so I'm part of that 
movement and tradition and uh, that is a life passion. I, I just, for the time being, I'm moving on to write about the spirituality of food. I, I'm hoping to, to teach in the fall. If my green card comes through, I'm going mm-hmm. to teach um, a class on the spirituality of food at a secular university, which I'm very mm. excited about. Wow. Um, because we need to reclaim food and how that affects our spirituality. And I think depending on what tradition you come from, we're all having to move towards the center, towards mm-hmm. um, integration, in towards wholeness. Um, yeah. We don't want to be anti-intellectual, anti-rational, anti-science. We don't mm-hmm. we really don't want that. That's very painful. But we also don't want to let go of the lived dimension into yeah. right in very rich and life-giving ways about that. So I, I, um, I try to seek um, those people out that, um, that you know, I feel do that well. Mm, that's great. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to tell you the reason why I actually purchased your book um, was because Moltmann gave you an endorsement, mm-hmm. and I was, and I love. Um, I love Moltmann. You know, I don't always agree with everything Moltmann says, but I find him to be such a stimulating yeah. theologian, um, you know, and so and it's funny because he's a German Protestant theologian, you know, who's kind of in that stream that we're talking about where he's highly academic, highly thoughtful. But there's also this part of him that seems to be, um, I, just, I recently um, reread his biography, his autobiography, and it's amazing how, uh, I guess, how engaged in the normal day-to-day stuff he was, which I think is why I've always appreciated his work, because it seems like he's always had one foot in the church. Like, yeah. he, he's still, yeah, he's, he's still listening to, you know, what, what uh, you know, some some couple in his church is, is facing and struggling. So I, I think that that's a really great blend. That's really beautiful. You're listening to The Sacramental Charismatic. In addition to this podcast, I have a fairly active YouTube channel where I create theological content for pastors, churches, and normal everyday followers of Jesus. As you can probably imagine, creating content like this has a number of costs associated with it. In addition to the various pieces of equipment and software that are needed, there are costs related to hosting and other administrative needs. Would you consider supporting this podcast? For just $5 a month, you could help me continue creating these resources. Simply click my Patreon account in the description from this podcast. Thank you so much. And now let's get back to our podcast. talking about um in this podcast i've been i've been trying to explore a little bit of what you've uh you've kind of alluded to the center because i for my my story is growing up in a charismatic uh world i did my undergrad in a in a primarily pentecostal school and then spent some time in in a uh reformed um 
area of the world, <laughs> Reformed theology, and then uh, and then did uh, my graduate work um, at the University of Birmingham with a bunch of uh, or um, a bunch of uh, I guess Pentecostal lowercase p Pentecostal charismatic uh, theologians, and and really in that experience, um, you know. I think it's where I first came to start thinking about my theological method and actually like, hey, I need to actually think that through a little bit. Um, and, you know, the integrative approach has been, obviously, I think you're right, everybody's moving in that direction. Um, I'm thinking, I don't know if you're familiar with David Benner, I'm sure you probably are. David Benner's work of, you know, integrating spirituality and psychology and theology. I mean, I just, I'm so attracted to that, that world. Um, and so I've been trying to explore the relationship between the charismatic because I think in the charismatic tradition, we have such a perfect on-ramp into the sacramental stream because our pneumatology is so rich. We, you know, we have, we have Holy Spirit stuff for days, which to me should naturally lean into an exploration of how the Holy Spirit becomes present and how the Spirit reveals um, you know, himself and, and where the Spirit is active in the church. Um, so I'd love to know, like, Give me your thoughts on the relationship between the spirit, the sacraments, and spirituality that you talk about in your books. Like, how do you how do you kind of flesh those those issues out? And then I, I love too. I'm hearing a little bit of missiology. You consider yourself a missionary, and, and not just a missionary for wine, but a missionary for Jesus and the kingdom. What what does that intersection look like for you? How how has how has that been something you've wrestled with? And you know, where are you at in your in your journey? Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I grew up in the Lutheran Church, the Holy Spirit wasn't a big theme. And then in the Catholic charismatic movement, the Holy Spirit became a very big theme, but in a very particular way, focusing on personal experience, you know, encounter with God through worship and allowing the Holy Spirit to move, um, how God heals us, you know, the whole emphasis on inner healing and how the Spirit is at work in that, and how the Holy Spirit leads us into missions. I think what I missed is how is the Holy Spirit at work with my family that cracks wine? Mm. Is the Holy okay. Spirit out in the vineyard? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Great question. How, you know, there is a very particular emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Um, and I think over time, my theology of the Holy Spirit in God's presence has become more multifaceted. Mm. And I see the Holy Spirit much more widely at work, especially mm -hmm. in the secular world, in what we consider mm -hmm. the secular professional um, <coughs> work. Mm. Um, that the Holy Spirit can hover over a vineyard just like the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters. Mm. Um, that the Holy Spirit can speak to vintners as they decide, should we bring in the harvest today or should we wait? Mm. Yeah. Um, so I think... You know, the Holy Spirit being present in the Eucharist. People have, you know, argued so much about how God is present in the Eucharist. That's been a big yeah. debate and still is and the differences. But all of them, all of them agree. Um, even singly that the Holy Spirit is present when we celebrate the Eucharist. 
mm-hmm. maybe not in black and white, but he's so present. Yeah. In that he is present um, with us, and that our responsibility or calling and vocation is always to be attentive. So I just had another interview an hour earlier with mm. someone from InterVarsity International, and they have been doing pilgrimages, and they could do that. <coughs> so they're offering mm. these pilgrimage classes. And so I'm going to do a session for them where I will talk about my work, and then I will lead people into wine tasting as a spiritual practice. Mm. And I said, in the secular world, in, in the most recent sort of master of wine sommelier, and I'm an expert in wine, their focus to wine tasting is very rationalized, again, mm. mm-hmm. um, like theology has been. And you are to explore the exact flavor profile of the wine. They feel like if you have the right language and the right lingo and the right degrees, um, and you are the high priest sommelier, you can do this. You can, you know, you yeah. can explain exactly what the flavor profile of a wine is, which, of course... Mm. You cannot. These people have been socialized into talking about wine in a certain way by their school. There's yeah. some, you know, truth to it. And then some of it is, you know, a socialization process to talk about wine in a certain way. And so your teacher says, well, if you smell this, you say this. Well, the, you know, in, 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 in Asia, they would talk about that very differently because their palate is very different. But one mm-hmm. of the things that people don't know is that when you smell... Um, whatever you smell acts upon your brain in such a way that it taps into your emotions and memories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's how tasting wine evokes the creative process as emotions surface or memories, and that's also where the Holy Spirit can be at work and inspire mm. you towards creativity, towards conversation. Mm. And um, yeah, so you know, I, I, think I just. We have I just, I just, uh, sorry to interrupt you. I, I just actually read a uh, an article somewhere about how music also has the capacity to help our tasting, and so there's certain music styles that actually enhance our taste uh, taste abilities, uh, and like so jazz, jazz, um, and I believe it was uh, classical music are are able to enhance the tasting experience, right? It makes the tasting that much better. Whereas, so I love underground hip hop, love it, uh, but it didn't score so well. It's aggressive and it doesn't, it doesn't, it raises anxiety levels. Uh, and so, yeah, that's interesting. So I could, I almost imagine like what you're saying is how you could actually have these worship sessions, um, you know, and I'm using worship in that sense of music, not in the broad, broad, uh, biblical sense, but you know, where you're you're singing worship to to the Lord, and then you're also enjoying a glass of wine, and perhaps uh, there might be a a, a um, really powerful experience in that moment. Which maybe that's Eucharist. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think we can turn sampling wine into an act of worship. Um, yeah, as we um, as we savor the wine and enjoy the beauty of it we can allow the wine to move us to be in awe mm. of what this world brings forth and how God yeah. has made this world and to um, explore more what creation, how amazing creation really is. For example, yeah. fermentation that I've been mm-hmm. in the COVID-19 crisis. I have for the first time in my life started baking sourdough bread and mm. I just used flour and water 
and then the bacteria on my hands, on the flower and in the air were the bacteria that started the fermentation process. Mm-hmm. And then after, you know, a few weeks, I baked my first sourdough bread. Wow. With, um, with a, a cookbook from, Cal, uh, from San Francisco called Tartine. But that we have all this life-giving bacteria in the air that God placed mm. there. Mm. If we can harness it in the right way and cultivate it and feed it and take care of it, mm. it can turn bread in uh, flour into bread and, and grape juice into wine. It's incredible. Mm. Yeah, the flavor of it all. That it if you have good ingredients and you, if you're careful and um, shepherd it along well, you can have this amazing food with mm. very simple ingredients. That's incredible. It's because God wants us to enjoy life. Yeah. He wants us to be joyful. He don't mm. doesn't want us to be miserable all the time. Yeah. You know, sometimes life is hard, but I just I think he, he, he he's placed so much into creation and I think we know so little of the wonders of mm-hmm. creation. We've forgotten about them. Because we're yeah. so busy, you know, getting all these yeah. you know, little bits of information. We know yeah. uh, you know, uh, a little bit about a lot of things, but to really explore how um, creation works in the particulars of, you know, for example, fermentation, the, you know, when you go to Wikipedia or even textbooks, you look them up, the explanations of fermentation are pretty flat. There are mm-hmm. hundreds of metabolic pathways. A lot of them, we don't, mm-hmm. we don't understand it all. Yeah. But it's incredible. It's, there's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot we don't know. Bitners are in awe of this process. Yeah. They know yeah. that they're not in control. They know how to sort mm-hmm. of help, you know, get it going. And then they watch it mm-hmm. and they, they try to shepherd it along. And But it's mm-hmm. not, an honest Bittner will will tell you, I'm not making wine. Yeah. It's just the midwife and just the shepherd. Yeah, you that's know, what uh, I, I did a wine yeah. tasting. I did a wine tasting in an urban, in, in Oregon, in uh, Portland. And it was an urban winery, and it was really fascinating to listen to the wine uh, maker talk about how you know he's experimenting with all these different soils, and he's like, I don't know, some of it might come out, and some of it won't. I just I thought it was really interesting because at that time I was still under the impression that no, you just like grow grapes in certain ground, and it tastes this way, and that's what you do, and very you know very ignorant of the process um you know that's that's amazing so let me ask you this um kind of switch gears about um kind of going into the charismatic dimension we've had some you know really fruitful uh, thoughts there on on sacramental theology i think and spirituality in general but have you had any charismatic experiences you kind of hinted at you've been to some meetings i mean have you have you been in some gatherings where there was clearly some quote unquote charismatic stuff happening and what are your thoughts? I think I think I've always been mystically inclined. You know, the mystics had a lot of mm-hmm. um, quite a few charismatic experiences. I think I've had those experiences without knowing what they are. Mm-hmm. And I think then through the Catholic charismatic renewal, um, I certainly had very strong charismatic experiences, and um, still do. I go to an Episcopal church now. Um, mm. I, you know, I love the liturgy of it, um, and it's not, uh, you know, a charismatic church, but mm-hmm. I have a lot of deep encounters with God, yeah. um, that I do enjoy, um, 
you know, when I was in Edinburgh, I went to a charismatic Episcopal church called St. Mungo's. They are very hmm. charismatic. And I think that's a very important part to cultivate that um, willingness to be open to the Holy Spirit, to listen to him, to um, expect him to move and to speak. And that's something that I try to cultivate. And um, though I you know, mm. go to an Episcopal church that's more traditional, I sometimes snip over to sort of a prophetic prayer group that a church mm. offers on Sunday at nine, once a month, and mm. um, trying to be connected to that community because ultimately we need it all. Mm, yeah, that's good. I, I, that is exactly, I think, what, what I'm hoping more and more people will will uh you know come to that conclusion you know I, it was interesting how when i started studying theology more i found that uh just in being being um critical in a in a loving way of my tradition the charismatic tradition i was like man we seem to have this idea that the only place that the spirit shows up at is on sunday morning during the music and if speaking in tongues or prophecy or praying for healing happens it's like other than that where's the spirit, you know? And, um, when I started thinking through the challenge of, of this question, I think I was, I was actually kind of challenged by this, by Amos Young, um, a, a theologian, Pentecostal theologian who writes a lot about what you're kind of talking about, about where's the spirit at work in Asian, uh, Asian religions, for instance, how is, how is the Holy Spirit work in Asian cultures? Um, I started asking that question of like, well, where's God at work in liminal spaces, spaces that are kind of in between the now and not, not, the not yet. We use that language a lot in the charismatic tradition. Um, you know, where are these, where's the spirit at work in those, those places, which then, you start asking questions like, yeah, where's the spirit at work in uh, vineyards or, you know, when I'm driving to driving to work or, you know, doing dishes. Um, so I think that's really, really, I think really helpful to think about that, how you can have these, you can actually go after those charismatic experiences, right? You might know places where they're going to be a little bit more maybe embraced or they're going to be sought after, but we can't forget about the, um, the regular normative practices as being also spaces for for god to show up that that seems to be really profound yeah and i think what my experience with you know the charismatic movement that i've been you know sort of been in touch with for the last 30 years is that their theology of suffering is not not always yeah. strong they don't <laughs> they don't quite understand that the Holy Spirit yeah. is very present in suffering, and George McDonald yeah. was great about that. You know, yeah, yeah. Great stuff about that. That's something in that if, you know, things don't get better in the way they hope to be, mm -hmm. then they start questioning God rather than, you know, God works over lifetimes and generations. You know, the charismatic movement popped up in the modern world post-Industrial Reformation. Yeah. So things yeah. happen quickly. Move, 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 move. <laughs> Sometimes they do, but often not. Yeah, um, a lot yeah of that's right. That God does um, happens very, very slowly. So it's a very, not that they wouldn't admit that, but if you focus too much on the immediate and experience and fixing and healing, um, you're in danger of eclipsing other mm. facets of the work of the Holy Spirit. Sarah mm. Coakley has written about that a bit. She's a great theologian. Um, mm. She's in Cambridge now, but observing the charismatic movement within the Anglican church and yeah. know, how they develop their theology. And um, so I think that's really important. And I, Johannes Tauler, um, 
probably one of the most important influences on Martin Luther, though it, I don't think it has really been explored by academics mm -hmm. very well, because a lot of his sermons aren't translated from the Latin or German into English. Okay. Um, he, but very profound influence on um, Martin Luther. He has a lovely sermon. He was in the Alsace region of France, in the Friends of God movement, and he has a great sermon about the charismatics. And mm. He warns them, you know, they had terrible disasters like, like we had, you know, with pests yeah. and natural mm -hmm. disasters. And so people then, that's when, you know, people wake up and they start paying attention to God and the charismatic movement sort of rolled around. Yeah. And he warned yeah. them and said, don't run after these charismatic experiences like going, you know, you, you, once you taste those, you can get addicted to them. And he compares it to someone going mm. down to the wine cellar and drinking from the wine vat and really mm. loving that great wine. And the temptation mm -hmm. is then to get a little addicted to it. Yeah, to wow. Experience. And I love that sermon for me because yeah. he's talking about the charismatics at the time and then mm -hmm. using the metaphor of the wine cellar and sneaking down sampling mm. the beautiful wine of a charismatic experience and then you get hooked and then you get addicted <laughs> and yeah. i I've, I've loved using that in my teaching because it's um you know there's not really anything new under the sun yeah that's right that's right that's so right it's, yeah it's important to acknowledge that they are there but mm. god gives them you can't force them yeah. And there's a season for everything. Obviously, it's very important to cultivate that part, but also to be patient hmm. and to be um, to be um, content with what God places before you and to, mm -hmm. to really try and understand that rather than run away from what's right there. Hmm. That's great. That's really, really helpful. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that one could actually argue that... Um, Many charismatics, uh, a theology of suffering is non-existent. So anytime we can be reminded of needing to think that through a little bit more is, um, and, and it seems like we, we're forced to start developing that when things go bad, right? That's when we start needing to actually like, oh, yeah, I need well, to really, yeah, I, I mean, we just need to start thinking about the implications of some of our theology and practices. Well, in the theology of the Holy Spirit, and the mm -hmm. theology of suffering are deeply intertwined. Yeah, that's right. And mm. um, that's what's so important. You do not develop, uh, you know, um, a deep understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit if you don't understand his work in yeah. suffering. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Let me let me switch gears again. I want to end with um, a, a question that um, if uh, it's a tough one, but you're. You're able to answer it, I'm pretty sure. Uh, let's talk about some, I want to talk about some practical ecclesiological challenges. And I'm thinking, so I, I kind of function, uh, I try to function as a pastor theologian. You know, I'm pastoring a church. My wife and I co-pastor a church together and I'm doing theological work on the side. And, and so I'm always thinking about theology in light of being a pastor though. Um, so I want to read a short quote from your book uh, in chapter nine. 
um, just because I think it'd be really interesting to get your take on on a, a chapter that you actually write about. And so the chapter is called Wine, and for any of our listeners, the chapter is called Wine and the Abuse of Alcohol, Rescuing Wine from the Gluttons for the Contemplatives. Love the, the title alone had me. Um, but here's what you say, uh, and I love that I want to uh, read this, and then I actually have a question that'll uh, jump to a practical challenge. But you, you say this, you say, we need to rescue wine from the gluttons for the contemplatives because wine was meant to draw us nearer to God and each other rather than alienate us even further from his loving and healing presence. In the words of the German proverb, to drink is to pray, to binge drink is to sin. So given the challenges of alcoholism and addiction, which you you talk about that in that chapter, so I don't want to make anybody think that you're not even addressing that. Um, you really wrestle through with um, really good um, academic sources, and you wrestle with the reality that there are people who are addicted to alcohol, addiction's real. Um, you, you're an embodied person. You've made a great, I think, case so far to say that you're trying to live in the real world. So I'm kind of curious about how would you you know, what advice would you give to both followers of Jesus, just, you know, normal people, and then also to maybe pastors or churches in regards to how they approach wine? You know, there's many followers of Jesus in certain traditions who are uh, prohibitionists, you know, teetotalers, and I'm not so much talking about those people because they haven't even clicked on the link to listen to this podcast, <laughs> but for, for people who are trying to um, trying to, you know, keep the tension. You know, I, I have friends in our church that are, you know, have, um, we have a lot of NA groups and we have people who have struggled with addictions. And so there's been a little bit of tension and how can you enjoy wine? And, and, you know, what's, what's, what's the right way to approach that in your opinion? Solve the world's problems is what I'm trying to get at. Just help us out here. Well, I think there, there are a lot of facets to the answer that I would want to give, but one of them you have to yeah, discern that on a local level, you know, mm. what country you're in and what context you're in that you're ministering in. If you minister in a congregation where there are a lot of um, recovering alcoholics, um, this will be a lot more pertinent. You have to be a lot more careful than in a congregation that um, has maybe some of them, but most of them don't. Um, mm. I think especially in a place like North America, and that's also true for the UK, where you had um, the development of strong um, alcohol abuse because of distilled spirits becoming the primary alcoholic beverage. You, your narrative is very different from a narrative, let's say, in France or mm -hmm. in Germany. Um, so I think that's very important. Um, I think we, we must learn as a culture how to develop a healthy relationship with alcohol. Mm. To not do that gives no one the ability to learn how to do that and to grow up. And so the church, I think, has an important role in um, you know, um, teaching people how to feast because it's not just alcohol abuse. I mean, mm. so many people have problems with food addictions. Mm. People don't know how to eat anymore. Yeah, that's so right. It, 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 it is not just alcohol. We, we live in a culture of addiction. And part of that is how our culture is run. And I talk about that. There's a book um, uh, by Bruce Alexander called the, Globe, um, the Globalization of Addiction, a Study in Poverty of Spirit. It's a brilliant book. But he really argues that 
our whole culture that we live in today, there's something really wrong because people are so desperate and so many people have developed so many addictions, alcohol, mm -hmm. food, shopping, you know, internet addictions. Yeah. So we, and I think the <coughs> antidote to that is to bring um, um, a wholesome communal life back into the center, life mm. around the table, sharing right. meals, listening to one another's stories. And so food and wine, um, I think, should play an important part of um, slowing down, having people mm. over for a meal and one glass of wine. Obviously, if there's someone that you know has a history, you must offer them an alternative. But they mm -hmm. also must learn that a healthy relationship with alcohol and drinking in moderation is a great gift to humanity. All yeah. the great reformers said, you may not refuse the gifts of God to the people of God. Mm -hmm. So I think it's not just about um, how do I bring wine into the church, but it's how do I bring a way of being in this world and being the body of Christ that brings healing to our communities. And I think hospitality in mm, drawing people yeah. around the table, in sharing meals together, and um, being with one another and listening to one another's stories and patiently walking alongside one another as we heal are profound ways that we can bring healing. And wine has a role in that, but I think it needs to be part of a greater um, shift in perspective. Mm. So in addition to all the, you know, worship and healing sessions that the vineyard movement has, mm -hmm. it would be great for them to have regular times of feasting together mm. where we draw from local farmers and prepare really healthy food and get mm. some wine and feast and do a little bit of dancing together. Mm. <laughs> I don't think you're going to find too many people in the vineyard that are opposed to that. <laughs> Well, hey, it has been such an honor and a privilege to have you uh, on the podcast. I mean, I can't tell you how huge of a fan I am. Um, just for any of our listeners, there are links to all of the books uh, that have been recommended here. So I'd really encourage you to pick, pick them up. Um, I think the, the Soul of Wine, your newest book that's out right now, uh, sounds like a fantastic book for just people who are interested in, in kind of wading into the topics that we've talked about. Um, you know, would you, uh, would you just, um, if, if somebody wants to follow you, I know you have a website, what are the best ways for people to, to kind of follow you? Are you on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook? What's the, what, how can we continue to be influenced by your spreading of liquid gospel? Um, I am on Facebook and I am on Instagram. I'm present on Twitter, but I'm not very active. I, I'm not sure if I like that uh, platform where I met much. There's so many arguments and I'm not, yeah. you know, I, I, I want to put for something positive. And I haven't written a lot about wine during this COVID-19 crisis. I've written more about bread and I've been baking bread because I felt like it was important to focus on our survival. Um, this is a time for us to survive, to do what we can to get out of this crisis. But so I'm slowly feeling like we can reintroduce feasting and drinking wine. Um, but I am very, in, I'm, I, I, I'm very intuitive about being on social media. So it's not very systematic or mm. <laughs> it's a very, um, I don't know. I enjoy it, but that also means it's not, I don't talk about wine all the time. But I'm, yeah. I'm you know, after a, a, a time of just focusing on 
basics, I'm, I'm ready to go to move into joy and ask, what does it mean to recover and heal from this? And um, lean into a posture of joy when I have certainly felt a lot of sadness and grief mm. over what's been happening. Mm. Well, thank you again so much. I mean, it's it's been such an honor and a privilege to have you on. Uh, absolutely, thank you so much. Love to meet you. Bye.